Hello and welcome to the Tea Leaves podcast, where we sit down to have an ongoing conversation on the Indo-Pacific century, brought to you by the Asia Group. Hello, I'm Kurt Campbell. And I'm Rich Verma. Each episode will bring you into the discussion with the most prominent policymakers, artists, journalists, business and thought leaders driving the Indo-Pacific from Delhi to Tokyo. And this week, we are pleased to welcome to the Tea Leaves podcast, my good friend and accomplished journalist, author, thinker, strategist, and one of the most authoritative voices on foreign policy and national security in the United States today, David Ignatius. David, welcome to the show. Thank you, Kurt and Rich. Dave, we're thrilled to have you uh, join us today to have a conversation about your career. Uh, you've just recently published a great book, which we'll get into in a moment. But we have to start. So there's been a wonderful movie that just came out, The Post. Uh, it celebrates the art and practice and mission of journalism. And I wonder, as a person who's dedicated his life to journalism and have served in so many capacities at the Washington Post, how did it feel uh, to go see the movie? I went to the premiere, which was here in Washington at, at the museum. Uh, seeing Tom Hanks and Meryl Streep up close was as cool for me as it would be for anybody. Uh, Steven Spielberg presented the movie, gave a little talk before it started. I uh, grew up in the Washington Post of Catherine Graham and Ben Bradley. And to see, in particular, the way Meryl Streep made Mrs. Graham come alive, captured her voice, her nuance, her movement, uh, was almost spooky. Uh, she was a woman, I uh, just thought she was a fabulous owner. She was a great friend and supporter for me when I was a young journalist. So uh, I loved it. The movie is a, a sentimental hymn to my business. How could a journalist not like The Post, uh, especially if, if you work at The Post? But I think that in this moment where uh, journalists, uh, my newspaper in particular, are under attack, having a movie like this remind everybody who goes to see it, I hope as much of the country as possible, what the values of our First Amendment mean in practice was fantastic. I, I walked out of that theater just glad that somebody had made this little monument to what we do. So, David, I, I noted, um, so you're a person who grew up in Washington, D.C. You have a fascinating history of uh, areas that you've covered as a reporter, but I was struck that your father um, was uh, Secretary of the Navy uh, during the Vietnam War and uh, just recently had a destroyer, DDG-117, christened uh, in his honor, which must have been sensational. love to hear about that. But I'd also be curious, um, uh, you're, you're a writer who is more associated with the Middle East, but in those early days where your father was serving during one of the most decisive and divisive conflicts in American history, how do you think about Asia from that early age and that early experience? I think the first thing I'd say is that uh, I, I grew up, uh, was born in 1950, grew up in what we think of as the American century, grew up um, with the images of American power and self-confidence um, just down the hall with, with my mom and dad, my father in particular, had served in World War II in the Pacific. Uh, part of that generation that had understood uh, victory, self-confidence, success, and my dad then came into the Defense Department uh, and served under, under Secretary McNamara and had to deal with the impossible fact 
that this incredibly powerful, successful country and generation that my dad was part of was being frustrated by a bunch of guerrilla fighters running around in what they called black pajamas. How could that be? How, how could this mighty country be confounded in Vietnam? And I have memories of my dad coming home in the mid-60s uh, just uh, looking so frustrated. I, I almost didn't want to enter his study when he was having a drink after work, just knowing the kind of pressure that he was under and that his whole generation was under. I think of a, a certain America hitting a wall uh, in 1968, uh, as the uh, Kennedy-Johnson years ended uh, with the frustration of Vietnam. And I'm not sure that that group ever was quite the same. I think the uh, new things began in America after 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 that, but that self-confident, uh, patrician elite, um, uh, that was that was its, its crisis. Um, in, in terms of, of the Pacific, I first went to China in 1984, um, as a diplomatic correspondent for the Wall Street Journal, I've been back to China many times since. I've been trying to spend more and more time in in Japan, Australia, uh, other key allies. I learned, especially if, from conversations with you, Kurt, to think about the idea of envelopes of American power, American alliance, that we weren't fated necessarily to confront China head on alone, but to try to deal with China through these good alliances, strong allies, Japan, South Korea, uh, Australia, Singapore, most obviously. So uh, it, it is true that I've spent much more of my reporting career thinking about the Middle East. Now, um, we all know that China is the issue we have to understand. I've been scrambling the last five years to learn more about it because I know that's the thing. The rest of my career, I'll, I'll have, I'll be, I get paid for getting that right or close to right. David, can you see any parallels between the frustration that your father felt, the kind of hitting a wall, as you put it, and maybe what we're facing today internationally? Is there a sense in America? Uh, obviously, we saw it in the election. Um, we need to dial back kind of what we have committed to abroad and in Asia um, in particular. What's, what's your sense of the parallels, or is this something completely different? Uh, unfortunately, I don't think a power is something that you can dial back. It's, it's not a, 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 you know, a kind of rheostat uh, with easy controls. Yeah, it's, it's dis discontinuous. As power begins to break, uh, it, it, you, you lose a lot more than, than you might think. Um, I think this last uh, uh, decade plus has been one of great frustration um, in which the United States learned, as it did during Vietnam, the limits of American military power, the limits of our ability to impose solutions overseas. And the reaction uh, is, is, is similar, uh, you could say a dialing back, a recognition of America's obligations at home and a public frustration with too many foreign adventures. Uh, President Trump represents that. <clears throat> I think the problem is that we have a, a very um, dynamic future competitor in China eager to fill the space that we want to pull back from. Um, it, and uh, Russia has done that to some extent in the Middle East, filling the space that we left open in Syria uh, and, and the region. But I, it's hard for me to see Russia as a 
significant long-term competitor. We've never faced a, a, a competitor quite like China, as rich, as self-confident, as as seductive uh, to the world. And uh, so I, I, I think there is that frustration in, in America. I, I just worry that when this period of retreat, licking our wounds, uh, reducing our commitments ends, how much sweater is going to be left? How 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 much yarn is will have been pulled out in this period? David, on that score, both Rich and I, you know, had the honor of serving and working on arenas that were, uh, at least in some sense, secondary arenas, where the primary focus of strategic leadership was on the Middle East and elsewhere. And one of the things that I was struck by is that, you know, during the 90s and the 2000s initially, that technology disrupted, in many respects, journalism. And so most of the remaining international correspondents, people like yourself and others that were distinguished, that were still reporting and managed to be associated with, you know, dominant newsprint or other uh, forms of mass media, almost all of them were primarily focused on Afghanistan, Iraq, and the like. And I was always struck on summits and the like when some of those reporters would come from these conflict areas, these hot zones, to try to report on Asia. It didn't seem to me that it was a particularly good preparation. They were used to, you know, quick turns on the battlefield, innovations in combat, when in fact, much of what we're dealing with in Asia is extraordinarily subtle. Uh, much of it is dominated by economic and commercial intercourse. Um, you've been one of the few people that I think are making that transition, but I'm curious as we enter really in full force the Asia Pacific or Indo-Pacific century, is journalism gonna be up to the task to help this generation of Americans to be to interpret that uh, developments in Asia in such a way that will be understood in terms of the stakes and the prospects. I, I hope so. That that's a challenge for for my business. We do have more and more Chinese speakers, in particular, coming into the news business. Uh, we have, I think, some outstanding young journalists who are helping us to see China whole. Uh, who uh, have uh, learned how to use China, Chinese social media to all the tools that help uh, make that society comprehensible. My own uh, daughter, who's a, a businesswoman, spent three years living in, in China. Uh, and when I would go visit her, I was always amazed at this incredible international community, uh, Americans, Europeans, uh, living in China, uh, learning about it, understanding uh, its its strengths and, and weaknesses both. Um, I, I think... Um, our biggest problem, to be blunt, is that uh, China uh, often uh, tries to intimidate foreign journalists and prevent them from covering um, China in all its complexity. And we're vulnerable to that pressure because we operate independently. We don't like the government to argue on our behalf. Uh, we need visas and accreditation and all the things that the Chinese government can grant or withhold. And uh, I think uh, somehow over time, uh, the Chinese have to accept the truth that they will hurt themselves to the extent that they close China off to the kind of open transmission of information. 
Lee Kuan Yew said to me once when I was editor of the International Herald Tribune, I hate what you write about me. Not me personally, but you know, my newspaper, the Western press in general. I hate what you write about me. But, I, but I've decided if I try to stop it, I'll only hurt Singapore. It was a very wise statement, characteristic of, of, of Lee Kuan Yew. I think the Chinese need to learn the same thing. If they hate what we write about them, but if they try to stop it, if they, if they try to control it too aggressively, they will stunt this amazing Chinese uh, growth story. Uh, and the, the, what China might be, it, it won't be, uh, because they try to limit it, steer it, control it. turn the mirror on ourselves a bit. Uh, you mentioned the attacks on the, the press and the importance of the First Amendment. Um, are you surprised we're going through this period here at home? And um, why is it happening now? And this question about where the truth lies and where the public should discern the truth. Um, is it in the Washington Post? Is it on a particular network? What do you, what do you say to people who are trying to figure out what is going on on where the actual real, quote-unquote, information lies these days? What, what do you say to people who are just trying to figure out what's happening? I am, I am surprised. Almost everything about uh, the Trump era surprises me. It shows I, I wasn't depression. Um, I think this goes back in part to something that we didn't anticipate but is more, more and more obviously true, that new technology in, in bursting bundles um, has, has burst our mainstream media bundling of information. Uh, it's, it's disaggregated the pieces. You, we were in the business of offering you a, a curated package of what we thought you needed to know. I think we did it pretty well. Uh, each package was different. That's what our brand was versus the New York Times. People don't want that. In fact, they resent it. They, they don't like the idea that David Ignatius or any other editor or senior journalist is going to tell them what they should read. So as the bundle gets broken up, disaggregated, people can take the pieces that they want. And the facts uh, increasingly seem up for grabs. I think that's what worries me the most. I don't think that our, uh, the kind of democracy we've had can exist in a country where the information base is uh, a, a sort of war zone. Uh, I just I think that's um, so I I think a lot about ways that technology could help us build a more solid base of fact that was commonly accepted. Without that, uh, I just think we're just we at the Washington Post, my colleagues at the New York Times, we're just walking into a huge headwind. People mistrust. The more louder we try to assert our our view of how, what's happening, the more people resent it. And one of the one of the consequences of that is, of course, the public being very divided. Uh, in the country, and that's from the political views they hold, the information they receive. But I wonder if we can connect a couple dots here from, and it's based on a column that, that you wrote recently about the impact of a very divided populace, a divided country, and our ability to shape, to lead, to influence events in other parts of the world. And you had talked to a number of military leaders. I just wonder if you could help us understand 
you know, we think of, uh, of this as kind of sometimes political sport, and this is what happens. It's a very partisan time, but we'll get through it. But you're really thinking that there could be some big foreign policy consequences to a very divided America. At the new year, I, I did write a column that you're, that you're referring to in which I cited conversations I'd had with um, senior uh, retired uh, military leaders who said that our divisions as a country are so profound that uh, they would make us vulnerable in any conflict, in any uh, protracted test with it, with an adversary. We see Russia uh, during our election last year, or two years ago, playing on the fault lines, playing on those divisions, uh, trying to trying to deepen them. They didn't create them, but they're but they're certainly uh, deepening them. Um, I, I do think uh, finding a path back to, to more unity, uh, more agreement on, on facts, on national purpose, on the, the basics is crucial. I'm struck we're, we're talking about the Indo-Pacific century. Um, nations in Asia think more about social solidarity, more self-consciously about social solidarity than we do. And you can understand why. Often they're uh, uh, heterogeneous populations where they, it's important to mix the different elements without conflict. Uh, and sometimes those are very heavy-handed efforts. It's not our way. We, we, we uh, just don't believe in intervening, uh, the, the idea of working to create social solidarity in my father's, grandfather's. Uh, time people worked very hard at that. They thought of civics and the sort of instruction in the American lesson, uh, bringing you know, keeping the heat up on that melting pot and melting, uh, so that we were all pretty more similar. Uh, that was that was part of the America that 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 created all of us. Uh, the the flames down and by, by intention. We don't we don't believe in that so much. Our Asian. The competitors, partners do. They're, they're, they want social solidarity. Is that something that we need to, to think more and talk more about? How we, how we, how we, share, how we share our American values as citizens um, uh, in, a, in a more productive way? It's a tricky conversation to have, uh, especially for newspapers. We're not in the business of telling people what to think, how to think. But I think it, uh, it's every speech ends. God bless America with a sort of little, you know, hymn to uh, Americanness. But in terms of this, the actual substance of common public life, not so much. In addition to being a Pulitzer-winning journalist and columnist and all the things that you've done over the last several years, you're also a very successful novelist. Many of us have read your stuff. We love Body of Lies, not only as a novel, but a great movie with Leonardo DiCaprio and Russell Crowe. We note that you've just recently published a new novel, and this one has um, a much more active role uh, for China, The Quantum Spy. Um, tell us a little bit about it and tell us what inspired you to choose this topic uh, to write about? The Quantum Spy, as the title suggests, is about uh, the battle between the U.S. and Chinese intelligence services for uh, dominance in the quantum computing 
space that's emerging. China has been very open in in identifying quantum computing as as the future high ground of information science. Xi Jinping has visited the, the Chinese quantum computing center. That they are advertising their success in quantum encryption and in, in having entangled. Uh, quantum bits communicating in, in, in contact, uh, not communicating so much over over significant distances, hundreds of kilometers. So they're really all in on this technology. So is our intelligence community. So are our, all of our leading tech companies. What fascinated me about this uh, novel was the chance to look carefully uh, as a novelist at the Ministry of State Security the Chinese intelligence service, to look at its tradecraft, to look at its people, to look at how it goes about uh, selecting targets for recruitment and then how it makes the pitches. Um, obviously, I'm a novelist, so, so much of that is, is imagined, but I did do quite a lot of research. And I was writing about a Ministry of State Security that in real life today is under a lot of pressure. It's been a, a major target of Xi Jinping as Xi Jinping seeks to install his people uh, in the PLA, uh, in the Communist Party, uh, that that's also been true with the intelligence service, and a series of senior people have been taken down. So that was it's fun to write about um, uh, uh, the spy world if you're a novelist, and this is pretty virgin territory. There have not been a lot of novels written. We know everything about Carla and Moscow Center from John Lecrae. We don't know don't know much yeah. about the uh, Ministry of State Security. Uh, it's interesting, and uh, the question will be whether any of these uh, wonderful books and yours will become movies because of how much financing now comes from China uh, into Hollywood. And so certain kinds of uh, movies, shall we say, are discouraged. I, I'm not, Kurt, I'm not, I'm not betting that any Hollywood studio is going gonna, is gonna to take the risk of making a movie <laughs> in which the Ministry of State Security is the chief rival of the CIA. Yeah. So let me ask you, um, Rich talked to you about a piece that appeared in the new year just a little while ago. You had a, another interesting piece that looked at another uh, area of contest. We've focused a lot in the last several months on how Russia has played in the soft areas of our country, uh, you know, elections, social media and the like. But there is now more attention to how a more subtle uh, campaign is underway uh, with respect to China, influencing our or seeking to influence our public debates on particular issues, engagement in our academic institutions, in our think tank, and our public life. Say something about that, if you would. Well, I was fascinated to learn that uh, our National Security Council staff is running a serious interagency effort to coordinate a much more serious look at how the Chinese conduct uh, influence operations in the U.S. Uh, this stretches from the intelligence community to the State Department, to policy planning staff, and it's a, it's a serious effort. And I think people are sensitive to the importance of not making this uh, a matter of national hysteria, a uh, new uh, red scare about the Chinese are coming, but instead. Um, making people aware that they are vulnerable to intimidation, to pressure uh, from a China that's very organized on this front. Uh, every 
a Chinese student who comes to America, and that's over 350,000 students now. It's the largest group of foreign students. Is aware that it's back home, they'd like you to join the uh, Association of Chinese Students and, 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 and Scholars, uh, which is basically connected to Beijing and can keep an eye on, on. it. It's clear that if a Chinese student speaks out in ways that make Beijing uncomfortable, as a University of Maryland senior did last year, saying that free speech is great and gave this ringing endorsement of free speech, that that student was really shamed on social media to the point that she had to apologize. So how, how do you give individuals like that or Hollywood studios that would like to make more creative, bolder movies that touch on China, but are afraid that if they do that, they'll get blacklisted. How do you, how do you give people a little more confidence to push back? And I think that's the aim of this effort. Uh, and in that sense, it, it seems sensible. If it, if it, if it moved toward uh, making people afraid of every Chinese student's a potential uh, spy or threat, that would that would really be unfortunate. That would that would. Um, uh, uh, be a terrible mistake for the U.S., but I, I don't see that happening. You talked a little bit about the importance of uh, social media and how we get our news these days. Um, when I think to the first 10 or 11 days of this year, uh, so much we've gotten have been through tweets, presidential tweets on Iran, on North Korea. In fact, the first tweet of the year was about um, Pakistan. How do you assess the content of the tweets or the tweets? Are they statements of U.S.? foreign policy? Have they gone through a pretty rigorous um, process? Is that how we should evaluate them? Or are they just the kind of um, kind of personal motivations of the president on any given time based on something he may have seen on TV or read in the paper? What are you, what are you doing with the tweets? Because they really do have a lot of foreign policy content in them. I've learned to take them a little less seriously, and I think most uh, governments have learned to do that also. Uh, not in the sense that they don't express the president's uh, feelings of the moment, but they're not necessarily a guide to um, changes in policy, uh, actions the United States government will take. I've heard from senior officials in the various cabinet agencies when I've asked them, what do you do when the president tweets something that's very disruptive to what you're doing? And the answer I increasingly get is, I try to ignore it. And the reason is not to disrespect the president. It's just it's not a well-considered statement of policy. The president often isn't prepared to follow through fully. If people try to push uh, the White House to follow through on each tweet, they end up in a, a space that they may not have, have wanted to be. This president believes in being disruptive. He, he, every I think every time that he issues a tweet that a lot of people think is crazy, and you know where'd that come from? He probably smiles uh, and thinks, ah, you know, I, I got him destabilized again because he thinks that creates space for diplomacy. He would probably point to North Korea's uh, movement uh, toward uh, talks with South Korea and participation in the Olympics as a positive result of his disruptive policy. Is he right about that? Well, you can certainly make the argument. Um, I, I think. The simple truth is that um, the world's getting exhausted by this unpredictability. And uh, I see some small signs that as the new year starts, uh, a very impulsive uh, president is is at least trying to um, think more about the consequences of these early morning, typically early morning messages. Right. 
David, let me take you up to just a large issue that animates a lot of debate and discussion uh, in Asia. One of the most interesting features of strategic commentary in Asia over the last 30 or 40 years um, has been about American decline. Um, on several occasions um, since uh, really the Korean War and then subsequently Vietnam, there were profound questions about whether the United States was in the midst of a hurtling decline that would um, uh, leave Asia without the American role uh, being a significant feature. Um, uh, there is a lot of quiet worry in Asia right now about whether the United States is changing or withdrawing or reevaluated as you uh, suggested at the outset. I'm curious, uh, for a person who's got a trajectory and has watched this over years, do you think that this is a um, is an episode um, and that the United States will resurrect a more um, robust and muscular international role? Or do you think uh, more likely that this is the beginning of a different kind of America, perhaps not as powerful, not as confident. What's your judgment if you would end where you began about your early days and your dad uh, having a drink in the study? Uh, if you visited him today in that study, what would he say? My dad would say at 97, um, I'm deeply worried that the country I grew up in um, is, uh, is weakening um, I've often quoted a, a metaphor my dad uses. Um, uh, he speaks about the way a top spins on a table. And if the top is spinning really fast, you can give it a real knock, and it, and it comes back to the center point. If the top is spinning more slowly, if the things that make, in our analogy, an integrated self-confident society uh, aren't present. You give that top a knock and it wobbles and it wobbles and then pretty soon it falls over. So I think that's really the the question that the country faces. Um, we have a president now uh, who, for, for whatever reasons, political opportunism, personal insecurity, his vision of what the country needs, in my view, looks at the divisions in our country and deepens them. He looks at the scabs that are forming over wounds uh, to our country social life, and he picks at them. He rips them off. And I think that's that can't continue without real damage. We do need to heal. The scabs need to you know, be, be allowed, allowed to heal. I, uh, Warren Buffett, everybody's favorite American uh, businessman, uh, likes to say that anybody who over the last 200 years bet against America's ability to solve big problems like this lost money. That was not a good bet to make. However, however good it may have looked in the moment, wasn't good. And so we'd say to our, our Asian friends, be careful about betting up against America. Personally, if this problem of social division isn't addressed, if we don't find leadership that can bring the country back together and make our political institutions work, then it be, begins to be a better bet. Then you'd, then you'd say that this may be a period of fundamental long-term decline, but I'm not ready to say that yet. David, thank you. Uh, and to our listeners, may I uh, remind all of you that you can read David uh, weekly, either bundled or unbundled, his uh, 
regular column, which is always filled with wonderful insights of the kind you've heard today in the Washington Post. And I urge all of you to go out uh, immediately uh, and uh, get a copy of The Quantum Spy and learn all about uh, the Chinese uh, state security apparatus and what they have in store for the 21st century. Rich? Uh, Kurt, thank you. David, thank you very much for coming in. And thank you all for listening. Uh, Please be sure to rate us on iTunes, Stitcher, or wherever you get your podcasts. And we'll see you next time. Thank you.